Hello and welcome to uh, the Real Film Podcast. Uh, this is the best of the 2010s part two. So if you haven't listened to part one, you can go and check that out now. Um, but this is a continuation of the best films from uh, the 2010s with me, Corey. And me, Phil. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> one day we might not be awkward when we're introducing ourselves, but there we go. So we finished the last podcast uh, in 2016 with La La Land, and we're going to continue again in 2016 with Manchester by the Sea. And uh, I know that last time you said a lot about La La Land and how much it affected you, but I think I'd say this is the movie that sort of affected me the most. Um, I remember sitting in the cinema watching it, absolutely just devastated. And it's the kind of movie that, you come out and you just can't stop thinking about it. And as much as I love watching films, there's not many films that do that to me. Um, and I think we also, we've talked about sort of, uh, especially in the article, we talked about how 2016 is such a vast year. It's not just a great year. It's got so many great genres. It's got so, yeah, so many specific films. And uh, Manny by the Sea is kind of one of those. It's just a nice little uh, indie drama that, for me, is just so organic. Yeah, I totally agree as well. I I think what um, writer director Kenneth Kenneth Lonergan did with it was um, he created something really really special that is um, it's so sort of grounded and real, but um, also as you said before, so devastating at the same time. We've mentioned before about the the sort of central scene that's in the middle of the film, and um, you know we've mentioned before. This is spoiler talk, so if you haven't seen it, don't listen to us talk about the spoilers in it. But that the scene in the police station is genuinely one of the most devastating scenes I've seen in the cinema. Um, it's so unexpected because, like, the first half of the film, you just see Casey Affleck's character so beaten and broken and down, but you don't know why. And you know he has these interactions with his wife and stuff like that, and they're both devastated. You speak, you just don't quite. You can solve start piecing it together but you you don't know exactly what happens until that scene and then you find out about the house fire and everything like that and then that scene in the police station where they sort of just let him go like he hasn't really anything done anything wrong despite accidentally killing all of his own kids you know um and he just feels just I, I, I don't know even know how to describe how someone would begin to feel in that but Lonergan created um, just such a organic feeling reaction to it um, yeah what and I mean um, uh, Affleck won the Oscar for uh, lead performance didn't he that year he did, yeah. yeah and I mean it's very very worthy win it's such a strong like I think we've said this before with other films from this from this list is that um it might not be as um it might not be on this list and it might not be as good if you didn't have such a strong performance from its cast you know you need the cast to keep up with the director direction and writing for it to be this good and affleck definitely does that too but so does lucas hedges i mean he's outstanding in it he's um i don't know if many people knew who he was before this i don't know if he had um too many um high profile uh, performances you might be able to think of any I, um, I can't think of any off the top of my head but he sort of really he almost steals the show from Casey Affleck in some points and you know the whole frozen chicken sequence and stuff like that everything like that is <laughs> sort of it's 
so deadpan but incredibly funny and um yeah it's just the the way that the humor replaces some of the emotion you know it's they don't know what to do like casey um casey affleck just doesn't know how to be the sort of parental figure to luke sedges and luke sedges just doesn't know how to react to his father's death and everything yeah i think the humor is so important as well because like it's such a difficult drama uh especially with its topic and uh, its reveal that I, i imagine for a lot of people it's quite easy to just go for the depressing angle yeah. and while it's so depressing it's also really important that it makes you laugh and it does it's just the deadpan like hollowness of the character is what makes him so funny as well and uh i think uh, you know we talk a lot about that sort of uh prison scene as well uh, sorry uh, police station scene uh but the scene that always gets me as well is you know when he just sort of turns a random corner and uh, his ex-wife's standing there. Oh my god, yeah, that is they, the love of your life, yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of like... <laughs> Michelle he, he's Yeah, she's great. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just like this whole thing that he's sort of avoided um, sort of uh, facing. Mm. He ends up just, just out of nowhere, and uh, it's a really fucking horrible scene to watch it's like the the crying in it is proper ugly crying but it's so like it feels realistic doesn't it yeah you know um, when like you're trying to talk while you cry and then yeah. it's like it all sat at the top of your throat and michelle yeah. williams is just the best actress ever so <laughs> Love she of obviously life. absolutely nails it she's <laughs> my life she's the best so we're going to add another edition from 2016. As I said in the previous podcast, there's five 2016 films in this list of 20. Um, and the next one is our next animation, which was Your Name um, by uh, Makoto Shinkei. Am I right? Is that correct pronunciation? Shinkei? Mm, yeah, that's fine. It's, it's, no one's going to call you on it. <laughs> Close enough. Um, I think it's Shinkai. But Shinkai. Okay. Shinkai is probably fine as well. Shinkai. Okay, well, I'm corrected there. But anyway, it, it's one of those where um, I think on paper, if you were to start describing it, you'd think it was just um, a forgettable um, body swapping rom com. But in reality, it's genuinely like one of the most original uh animations of the decade um and for a very long time it's so energetic and and just this so essentially you have these two kids who um i mean their kids are sort of teenager age so i don't think their names are ever explicitly said but um they wake up in each other's bodies um one's a you know one's female one's male and i just the, the the that first half of the film when they start waking up in body, each other's bodies and they're trying to figure out what's going on and they start like leaving notes for each other and stuff like they're writing on the hand and they're writing on the phone it's just i think it's so like such a excellent portrayal of how like um a young youthful person would deal with it Do you know what i mean i know that sounds like a bit yeah. of an old person thing to say but there's just i, I just it's oozing with originality um and it has just a completely, um, it just flips the whole narrative on its head when you realise what's actually going on, you know. Um, did you, what, what what reaction did you have to the moment where you suddenly realise what, you know, what their relationship actually is and where they are in it? Do you know what I mean? The sort of... Well, I mean, I, I had the same thought process as you when I was first watching it. And um, I think you're just watching an incredibly 
like it does feel quite lighthearted in t- at times, but it's also, you know, it's it's about sort of like that youthful discovery as well. Mm. And uh, when it hits that scene, it kind of just I felt to me it's just like any great sort of twist is that it's like it's just adding to an already great film, yeah. basically. And, and uh, one thing one thing you said in the uh, original article was that this is not freaky friday and that's exactly yeah. right yeah um you know it, it's very easy to sort of think as think of this concept as sort of a, a very easy sort of uh it could be romantic comedy you know just very easy to brush off but i think uh shinke's got a very he's got a very di- direct way with how he deals with emotions in the film as well yeah absolutely i think and, uh yeah sorry sorry to interrupt. but um yeah no i was just gonna say like what i think it's quite interesting. It's like with most good twists in air quotes is that they're not so much of a twist. They're more of a revelation. Do you know what I yeah. mean? Like, because the whole time, um, you know, something's up, but you just don't know exactly what it is. And when, then when it, cause it, it is a sort of twist because you think, you know, sort of what's coming, but then it just sort of flips it on its head. And you know, the real, like you realize how separated they really are. But I just think, I think it's really, really beautiful. Um, yeah, I th- I think it's it's one of those again where you could see that it's an anime. Like that's another in air quotes anime, and you could think, oh, you know, it's just one. Just like I think there's um a real bad um sort of uh perception of anime anime in Western like culture sometimes where we just think we know what it's going to be and it's completely not. Like the best um anime out there is the ones that use their um, slightly more sort of eccentric um, uh, visuals to create a really, really human story at its core, you know? Um, yeah, there's always that sort of bad stigma attached to it, isn't it? And I think people like Shinke and like people like uh, Ghibli, yeah. uh, they sort of, they deserve to be recognised, not with that stigma, basically, because mm. they do create, like, amazing films as absolutely. well. Absolutely. And I think one thing I really liked about this as well is you could very easily, if you were into cinema and you obviously knew Ghibli and stuff like that, you could very easily compare any Japanese anime you see to a Ghibli film because they are, like, the gold standard. Um, I think this is on a completely different, like, it's just, it, it's not the same kind of film at all, is it? Like, it's, like... No. Ghibli don't often go for contemporary films they usually set it either um not like either in a sort of slight like it's generally in the past but not massively in the past or in a sort of alternate history type thing where it's slightly in the past you know like kiki's delivery service that would probably be set um in the last sort of 50 years or so but obviously with witches um (laughs) but yeah I i think it's very very different from that it really makes itself stand out as um you know, a really unique piece uh, that I think is really worth watching. Yeah, and what I was saying about that sort of direct sort of confrontation of emotion as well is that's not something Ghibli does either. They're no. a little more... Uh, maybe they do have their moments, but uh, I think they're a little more coy with what, like, what they're doing. But Shinke kind of... It's just so nice to see a film that delivers it so abrupt and direct to the point where it could uh, come across as sort of like cheesy, in the mm. wrong hands, but he doesn't. He absolutely nails it every time. Absolutely. And absolutely. Uh, yeah, and I think you're right by saying that sort of it, it's it's a whole 
different sort of kettle of fish to Ghibli, really. I think. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I, don't, I mean, much of much of Japanese cinema is like that. But I, I do like. Um, I do think that sometimes people see a Japanese animation and they go, "Oh, I wonder if it's good as Ghibli." Um, I think we should probably start rounding out 2016 because we've been talking about 2016 for a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're going to go with uh, Denis Villeneuve's first uh, on the list we've got so far, which is Arrival. Now, could, you could probably put all of Denis Villeneuve's filmography from 2011, uh, to the 2010s on this list, couldn't you? Because he's got Incendies, he's got um, Sicario, um, Arrival, and then he's got another film that we'll talk about later. Now, all four of those films are just absolutely outstanding. Um, and when you were talking about earlier, when we were talking, uh, when we were talking about Manchester by the Sea, and how um, 2016 has such a depth in the genres that it spans, Arrival is one of the most unique and brilliantly written sci-fi's in quite some time. You know, it's adapted from that short story, uh, story of your life. Um, and others by Ted Chiang. Um, it's very different. I don't know if you've ever read the short story I have. It's a really great short story, but it's very, very I've different. Um, I can't read. <laughs> um, and it's it, it, it's the kind of film where you don't go in expecting massive, big sci-fi battles and stuff like that, because that's not what you're going to see. There's quite an extended, like one of my favourite sequences in the whole film is when the, your lead character, Amy Adams, lead, like she writes that sentence on the whiteboard and just does this like complete dissection of why she's doing this sentence like it is and just breaks up exactly how language works. And I just think it's absolutely outstanding. So the sort of the basic premise of this film is um, that these alien craft have just appeared on on earth um and the army recruit a linguist professor which is amy adams to um essentially come in and almost do some sort of translation for them because she had some sort of military clearance beforehand so they bring her in to sort of try and help uh, understand the alien that are on the craft that they can see that it's like i think the visual of it is absolutely stunning where you've got like this black room with like this enormous white um almost like this the edges are almost like endless aren't they because you can you can see there's a ground to the other side but the um the like the edges and the and the ceiling off the other side of this almost like a barrier is just endless it's got this like beautiful white smoke it's beautiful in contrast and then you have the heptapods come in and they start talking in their in their language and it's it's bizarre to to think that a film that spends so much time talking about language is so riveting but it's just absolutely genius and it's again it's another one of these that has a heartbreaking revelation in it because you have um, it opens with this montage of um, Amy Adams uh, growing up. She, she, she sort of grows up with her daughter and then her daughter at a young age um, dies. I don't think it's ever said what the illness is, but she dies of this illness. And then the rest of the film, she's quite just dour and, and, and sort of empty for the rest of it. Um, and the, the realisation of what is actually happening where, again, spoiler alert, do not watch, do not listen to this if you haven't watched Arrival already, when you find out that she hasn't had the child already and that she's essentially seeing flash forwards into the future because the language helps you rethink how time works. 
And this entire time, her feeling of dourness and emptiness is coming from the fact that she's sort of getting her emotions from the future already. Is just, I, I mean, I've I said this to you before about how I've watched the film many, many times again, and every time you can get something new from it, and and how genius the narrative actually is actually written. No, yeah, I mean, I I know that you can talk about this all day. Yes, I know. I went on there for a while, <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, no, no, it's just that, you you know, this is another film that we found from this year, just this <laughs> year, that, you know, you're particularly passionate about. And I love it, too. Uh, I maybe haven't watched it as many times as <laughs> you or as, as much as I'd like to, to be honest. But one thing that always stood out for me is uh, it's kind of when you think alien invasion, you sort of think uh, sort of the power of the human race versus the aliens. But in reality, this one's more about I think it's just the world being its own enemy a mm. little bit. Yeah, uh, which I really loved. You know that that all that squabbling between all the uh, sort of uh, world leaders, yeah, and whatnot. And one thing you were saying as well, how it's so riveting. It's that same thing that Nolan's able to do, that Christopher Nolan can do as well, is sort of make complex things that maybe wouldn't be cinematic, and turn them into a spectacle. And I yeah. say Villeneuve is be- better than Nolan because. <laughs> um, the way Nolan sort of structures his films is around basically action scenes, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. Uh, whereas Villeneuve, it's just you can just sense how much passion is going into this story, um, and he's got such respect for any kind of uh, source material he does as well, mm. um, especially in this and obviously in the film we're going to talk about later. Um, but yeah, I, I think you talk about how good this film is better than I do. All I can say <laughs> is that. I'm more than happy for it to be here because it's absolutely phenomenal. And yeah. Denis Villeneuve is like one of the best directors, if not the best director working today. Absolutely. And I just, before we move on to the to the next one, I just want to quickly gush about the score as well because, um, I mean, it was done by um, the unfortunately late Johan Johansson, who was genuinely one of the best um, composers working today, I would say. I think his stuff is just absolutely outstanding. But the way that he um, uses that like his own score and blends it with on the nature of daylight which is that piece by max richter um that is the piece that opens and then closes it as well it's the the piece that is over the first montage and then is like a motif throughout for whenever amy adams is thinking about that daughter or she has those emotions and then when you realize what's going on and she sees the daughter that she's going to have and the relationship they're going to have it has on the nature of daylight over that i just think that is absolutely just the way that you blend it together and you don't even realize you're listening to like a a song that has already been composed some years earlier and it just like blends beautifully into the score by Johansson. Yeah, I think it's um I think it's absolutely outstanding. Finally, we're getting out of uh, 2016, uh, moving on to 2017, another great year as well actually. Mm. But um the one we're focusing on is Jordan Peele's Get Out. Uh and this one was I think another one that blew everyone away because Jordan Peele obviously known for his comedy, uh, Key and Peele was obviously very popular in America. Uh, but I don't think anyone knew that as a director he had this kind of... Uh, we all knew he had the humour, because Get Out is a very funny film in its yeah. own right, but uh, that sort of uh, ability to blend um, his narrative with sort of social issues, basically, and turn it into such an entertaining film as well. Mm. Um, and what I loved about Get Out... Um, before I start telling you why I love it, I'll tell you what it's about. But, um <laughs> Um, essentially, uh, 
Daniel Kaluuya's character uh, is going to meet his girlfriend's, his white girlfriend's parents for the first time. And he's sort of just, he's sort of met with this, it's niceness, but it's sort of backhanded racism. And uh, it kind of leads to a very uh, thrilling ending, we'll say. I'll just leave it there and let you watch it yourself. But what I love is um, one thing I took away from the film after like the third time watching it was that uh, just how smart Jordan Peele is with his dialogue, with how he shows certain things in order to give you subtle little hints towards what's going to happen at the end. I think it's just such a fantastic and intelligent screenplay and he deservedly won the Oscar for it. Mm. I think it's so original as well. I mean, when was the last time you saw a film like this other than Us? <laughs> you know, his second film, um, which is still good, but it's not quite as good as Get Out. I think, um, I feel like, it was. I feel like uh, Jordan Peele was had this had this film boiling for years, you know, waiting for the right moment to make it because it just feels like there's so much passion and intensity put into it. It's such an intense film. So, like that scene, for example, with uh, Catherine Keener who plays um, the mum, is is like when when she's sat and um, she's essentially hypnotizing him to try and stop him from smoking, and he goes into the sunken place. I mean. That I mean, that's a visual was just incredible as well. The way he just sort of falls in backwards and into the chair. I mean, Daniel Kaluuya, have you, have you what a sort of moment? You know, do you know? Do you know when you sometimes you just watch a film and you're like, right, that actor has arrived. This was the performance to be like. This is now super like everyone's seen it. Everyone knows how how good this person is. I feel like Get Out was that for Daniel Kaluuya. Um, I feel like it it was the one that everyone took notice and being like, Oh shit, this yeah, we need to we need to keep our eye on this guy. And that yeah. scene in particular when he has been hypnotized and he has that look on the face, it's actually the picture that we used in the article when his eyes are just streaming but he can't do anything. Like the way that he shows the sort of fear and desperation and pain, but without moving at all is just what a performance it was absolutely outstanding yeah i mean he's i mean i think before get out maybe i'd only seen him really in i mean i know he was in skins <laughs> and he was in johnny english reborn mm. <laughs> but before <laughs> well that, no that, i'm sorry that was that's the breakout performance there we go that was that I'm, yeah, of course yeah, not yeah, get yeah. out johnny english reborn yeah yeah i know he was in sicario as well but uh was he smaller part yeah he plays um emily blunt's mate <laughs> oh god yeah i'd forgotten about that i was yeah, talking about the film earlier <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't get like a lot to chew on in that no, uh, no. he's quite a small role so this it was this yeah but like you said just that sort of helplessness and mm. all that emotion that he's got into that sort of um inability to do anything and that single tear yeah that falls the fact that uh, like i read afterwards that he sort of he, man- he nailed that every single time how do you how? how do you do how that? do you do that how do you do that but it's no impossible i swear <laughs> he is he is phenomenal and i'm so glad that he got to do this with peel as well because they've yeah they've made a really really excellent piece of cinema they're super original super important as well i think it's i feel like that this decade has been such an important decade for social issues we've had a lot more um you know as we mentioned in the log uh, the last podcast with blue is the warmest color and stuff like that um and moonlight they've we start this year has, has had more mainstream and critical 
um, success, I think, for um, social issues for LGBT plus and um, uh, issues surrounding um, black culture and things like that. I think it's and racism. I think it's it's always been there. The films have always been made, but I feel like it's becoming far more mainstream to see these. You know, most people are seeing these films now rather than just cinephiles and and uh, reviewers. Definitely, I think also it's it's a great time for horror as well. Absolutely, um, reinvented think, the horror genre nearly, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, basically, and I mean, you know, Peel and Eggers and uh, Ari Aster, mm. those three together have just made some of the best horror films in so long this decade. Absolutely, um, but I think Get Out just for how there's such a it's such an accessibility about it as well. Cause it's so, it's so entertaining. Yeah. You could watch it so many times because it's not the way I saw it is that it's not terrifying in like a traditional horror sense. The horror is sort of that idea that, uh, this is dealing with real people, people that exist sort of in our world. These like white people who are, backhanded racists and they they exist these ideologies are it's the horror liberal liberal racism isn't it yeah 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 it's, it's it's like when the dad says like um shortly after meeting daniel Kluwer's character he says something along the lines of oh if i could have voted for obama a third time i would have and it's yeah actually it's this liberal racism where people don't really they think they're being progressive but they are still being racist yeah it's really really yeah. interesting so we're going to move on to Phantom Thread, which was Paul Thomas Anderson's second of the decade, I believe. Um, the first one would have been The Master, wouldn't it? Third. Third? In Inherent Bias as well. Was that this decade? Yeah, it was like 2014, Holy, I mean. Holy shit, I forgot about that. But anyway, um, Phantom Threads is... <laughs> A acquired taste, I would say, of a film. Um, one that I absolutely love. I'm completely transfixed with this film. Where when we do our next podcast of honourable mentions, I think Corey. Uh, I'm not sure about this. It could be missing here, but I think Corey might say that he's he would remove this from his twenty. But um, I am strong. This is a this is a strong in the list for me. There's something about this film that completely transfixes me. Um, I mean, all Paul Thomas Anderson films are just unique in their own sense. They always have something about them that is just he just makes films like no one else. Um, but the relationship that is shown is like nothing else I've ever seen, um, and ends on one of the most <laughs> unique relationships. Um, most disturbing, but one of the most unique relationships I think I've seen in some time. And I mean, it's got Daniel Day-Lewis in it. And I'm, has the guy been bad in the last 20 years, you know, since he became, you know, the Daniel Day-Lewis we know him? I think he hasn't had a performance which has ever been anything less than outstanding. Um, and having him has this, you know, renowned dressmaker um in London is, you know, I think the way that he balances his sort of um, his immaturity and, you know, coping with pressures from the industry and having this sort of these constant fleeting relationships with women until he finds one with um, Vicky Creeps. I think that's how you say the actress's name who plays Alma. Um, I think she the fact that she is able she spends so much screen time with Daniel Day-Lewis as well, and the fact that she keeps up with him. She doesn't... I don't think she quite steals the show from him. I don't think anyone can do that to him. But the fact that she keeps up with him is a pretty astounding feat in itself. And and I think if 
his the person who plays his sister leslie manville i think if she had more screen time she would have done it i mean there's certain um sequences where they're sat sort of having breakfast and the way that she bites back at daniel day lewis is uh it's the tension is palpable um I absolutely love it. I think it's super original, and it's one of it's one of my favorite uh, PTA films in a while. Um, what did you think of it? I know you're not quite as high on it as I am, but yeah, I know that kind of makes it sound like almost like I don't like it. Of yeah, course, no, I no, love no. this film. I wouldn't have agreed to it being on this list if I didn't like it. Um, I think for me, it's the script is so intriguing. Just how you kind of get to that ending. Well, I, I don't. I just don't understand how someone's mind works that way. But no. uh, it's kind of just the genius of PTA, really. And you know, to go back to Daniel Day Lewis, we were talking about. You know, he's not. He's been basically fantastic in everything he's been in. Whether the film's good is, yeah. you know, irregardless of that, he's still fantastic. And I think this one was particularly good because he's he's not the Daniel Day Lewis that we see in things like. Gangs of New York and There Will Be Blood where he's just got this like bravado and just like it almost seems impossible for anyone to <laughs> take like steal a scene from him but yeah. there's it almost feels like there's you know there's a lot of weakness to this character and Daniel Day-Lewis is so good at, at sort of portraying that as well and that's kind of the reason why this should be the exact reason why people say that he's like the best actor of all time yeah. because it's so much different from his other performances and uh, he's obviously got such a good relationship with PTA. And like I said, PTA is uh, such a fantastic director. He's one of my favourites. Um, I wouldn't, I'd still obviously put it up there with one of his best, but mm. to me, all his films yeah, I mean, again, <laughs> are incredible. So yeah, it's difficult. It's, it's like Sophie's Choice, isn't it? None of it, he's, I don't think I've ever seen a film by him that's anything less than really, really good. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, he's, yeah, he's, he's, you say you say Denis Villeneuve is one of the best working directors. You've got to put P.T. Anderson up there as well. Definitely, um, yeah. I think obviously we'll talk about it next podcast. But there, I probably obviously there is a film I would probably put in place of this. But like I said, take nothing away from it. It's still a fantastic film. Yeah, I think I think um, that just comes down to personal taste more than anything. And I have, you know me, I have a um, a certain affinity for. Um, quite grounded and like personal films i really like films like there's something i really love about this film there's not really much of a narrative in terms of anything outside of the relationship do you know what i mean like yeah he kind of has to he, he there isn't this overarching narrative of him making this one dress for this one person for this one event or anything like that <clears throat> excuse me but like like there's just these constant little points throughout but it's the it's the relationship that's sort of the overarching narrative where i think i just it's fascinating i absolutely love it yeah it's not like the film is building to this like one big scene where he's like it's like you picture another screenwriter thinking well maybe he's got like this one special dress that he has to make for this like final moment in the yeah, movie and that's yeah. what he's building up to it's kind of just about how this relationship evolves in what the ending is basically yeah yeah, uh, and it's it's so intriguing, and I I love it, but, but it's just baffles me. Yeah. <laughs> still, how, how do you come up with that relationship at that end? Is um... I know it's it's fantastic though, and uh, obviously moving on to another film in 2017, uh, another romance. Uh, Call me by your name. <laughs> uh, slightly different kind of romance, but yes, slightly yes. different. Directed by Luca Guadagnino. I apologise, <laughs> I got that wrong. <laughs> uh, but uh, 
essentially this is a kind of such a gorgeous romance between uh, two men in the Italian uh, summertime, I guess, in 80s, I believe, um, between a university student played by Army Hammer and a, a teenager played by Timothy Chalamet. Um, uh, and it's kind of that sort of, you know, that idea that sort of summer, summer never ends almost, you know, that kind yeah. of idea of these beautiful summers that we have. And it, it has that same theme. But I think more importantly for me is it normalizes the homosexual relationship into just a normal romance, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think films that deal with uh, the LGBT community, I think they always make a big deal out of that. But this one doesn't. It's just plain and simple. It's a romance, mm-hmm. and that's why it's important. And I mean, also, how good is Timothy Chalamet in this? I mean, yeah. Talk about breakout performances. Uh, that even the credit scene is oh, absolutely phenomenal. Definitely staring into the fire. It's, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. I mean, it's a very pretentious um, like thing to do, but it works so well. Like pretentious doesn't have to mean bad. You know, being pretentious doesn't have to mean bad. But that is, it's a really, really deeply affecting sequence, yeah. Yeah, I think you can talk about that film in that way, I guess. It's, it is a little bit pretentious, but it's not necessarily pretentious bad. No. I think um, another scene that's so effective as well is when uh, Timothy Chalamet is talking to his dad, oh. uh, Michael Stuhlberg. And also, I'd like to just shout out Michael Stuhlberg, one of the best supporting actors of this entire decade. Yep. Uh, he's so good, but you know that's off the point I'm making. Uh, <laughs> just wanted to give him a shout out, you know. Um, <laughs> our fa- our yeah. favorite fan. <laughs> uh, when sort of Army Hammer has to leave, and his dad, um, sorry Timothy Chalamet's dad, ends up having to sort of like comfort him with this really beautiful monologue uh, about love, and it's it, it's. The whole film is is just directed beautifully. It's written beautifully, and it's even it's just performed so well. Mm. Uh, to be honest, before this film as well, Army Hammer to me was. I know he was a good actor. I didn't particularly think, oh, Army Hammer, yeah, you know, sort of he's got this like incredible, impeccable range. Mm. But uh, he's really showed a sort of tenderness to his roles. The blade, and uh, that was a sort of turning point is, for him, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 definitely. And I think he's fantastic as well. Um, but yeah, overall, just such a beautiful romance, and it's why it's on this list. It's one of the best of the decade, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I don't really know what else to add. You know, man, it's it's just beautifully elegant. Um, there's so it's a sort of coming of age drama mixed in with this realization of sexuality and dealing with that, and then dealing with the sort of fleeting fleetingness of young love as well. Um, yeah, so I, I I'm not entirely sure. I think you covered it beautifully as well. Just it's it, I I think as you said as well, it's almost impossibly gorgeous how well like shot and and stunning the Italian landscape is. If I did have sort of one hang up, because I remember the first time I watched it there was one hang-up I had, and it's when the two of them get that opportunity to go and spend a bit of time together. Yeah. Just, uh, like not surrounded by other people, just those two. And for me, it kind of, when I first watched it, it felt like it made the movie drag a little bit to get to, you didn't really need it. But after reflection, I think you do need that. You know, the two people who have fallen in love, but there's always that thing of not being able to sort of... Uh, 
truly express themselves mm. and this obviously gives them that opportunity that's my that was my only hang up at the time is that i probably thought you could have taken that out and it would have been fine but you know i was i was still singing the praises of this film it's such Absolutely. a fantastic beautiful movie with thing as well before we move on to the next film um did you know they're making a sequel as a sequel yeah. in the works, which I think is really strange. Sequels don't always work. However, our next film is a sequel that worked really, really well. That is a flawless segue. I, that is fantastic segue, I, mate. I lined We're up getting there. good at this, aren't we? No, no, <laughs> definitely not. That was. <laughs> but segues don't always work out for the best. I'm hoping that Call Me By Your Name 2 does. But our next one is Blade Runner 2049 from the same year. Um, it's the second entry by Denis Villeneuve. It's... We only put two on here, but as I said early, earlier, you could easily have put all of his films from this decade on this list. Yeah, um, And I think we're just going to come out and say it. We're going to rip the band-aid off. Blade Runner, the original, is both one of our favourite films of all time. I have a huge affinity for um, slow-burning, sort of more thinking sci-fis like Blade Runner and Arrival and stuff like that. And I think we're going to just rip the band-aid off and say 2049 is better than the original. Yeah. Are yeah, we, are we I'm, agreeing I'm on with that? You there, mate. Yeah, yeah, 100% yeah. and I think that's an incredibly bold statement to say, considering how well regarded the original is. But I think what twenty forty nine does is it doesn't just continue on the story and stay in the same sort of setting and universe. It creates this. It just expands upon it in every single way possible. You know, it takes all of these, it takes the same themes and even some of the same characters and just creates this even deeper, even more complex story. Um, and it just, again, another stunning performance by Ryan Gosling. As I said before, this is Gosling's decade, absolutely. And I think he's absolutely brilliant as um, Agent K in this. You know, he is a replicant who is hunting down uh, replicants in themselves. Um, you know, I think I think it's it, as I said, it takes these same themes of um, you know, humanity and everything like that, and just it, it just expands upon them. And it's uh, as you know, we said with "Call Me by Your Name," that is, that was impossibly beautiful in this Italian countryside. The way that twenty forty nine takes the same sort of neon futuristic aesthetic of the original Blade Runner and you like puts it in in you know modern technology is just outstanding. There's the I I don't know how you come up with a sequence like this and make it work as well. But when K is decides to have sex with his AI, which is just a hologram, and the hologram hires a prostitute, and and the hologram is sort of putting it itself inside the prostitute, so it looks like Kay's having sex with the hologram. How you come up with that and then make it work is uh, yeah. I don't I just don't know I don't know how you it's, do that. It's actually just like freaky when you first watch it. Yeah, <laughs> it's because it's working so well. You just you don't because it's not even like the hologram is. It's not Star Wars or or anything like that style hologram where you can kind of see through it and it's a bit fuzzy. It's perfectly crisp and just looks like a normal human. So when you have two perfectly crisp looking humans, sort of slightly <laughs> out of time before they go in together. Um, yeah, what a, what a beautiful, uh, beautiful film, though. Yeah, it's, I mean, you basically said everything. <laughs> I think we both have a very similar opinion on why this movie is so great. It's that idea that it it never besmirches the original. It knows where it came from, but it's not afraid to sort of expand on those themes and stuff. Um, and I will say as well, I mean, 
again, I was going to mention Ryan Gosling, but you've got it. You've got it. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> uh, but also Anna Diarmas in it. Is, she's the hologram. She's brilliant. She's the AI. Yeah, she she's the hologram. Yeah. She is the hologram. She is. She's the AI, I should say. But yeah, what <laughs> I I I think it's one of the most visually beautiful films of this decade as well. I think you could put it up there as one of the most beautiful. Just it's just the sweeping landscapes and just like the way that K like constantly feels lost in the city is just it's, you have that beautiful juxtaposition of him sort of confused in his own humanity and then being lost in these sweeping landscapes around him and i wrote i mean i wrote in the article about how everything feels like almost dreamlike like there's the bits yeah. where he's like walking through the streets at night and you have that giant Anadiyama's hologram coming down and talking to him and it's just it's quite jarring isn't it because at this point you know yeah. she is an AI that lots of people have access to and he's basically in love with her but then you have this sort of hundred foot tall one coming down and talking to him and I, I, I just think I think it's um Villeneuve's best film I think he's just completely in control of his craft um and I I just yeah I I think it's probably in my opinion it's the best of the decade um uh there's a lot of other films you could put in there but for me this is I think it just gets above the rest I don't think anything shoots quite as high and reaches you know what I mean like it's going out there to be a sequel to Blade Runner and be as good as Blade Runner and reaches it. So, yeah. I th- yeah, I mean, y- you spoke about your sort of love of sort of hard sci-fi, that idea of like thought-provoking sci-fi. I think the reason I like the original Blade Runner so much is because of its noir. Mm. Um, and while this one is, I would say, in terms of story as well, it's not as noir as the other one, uh, it still has that sort of side of Blade Runner as well. Yeah. And again, you could just you could list so many reasons why this film is so good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but to me, it's the idea that it it's it expands on scope, but it still manages to sort of keep that sort of noir aspect of yeah, uh, um, the setting as well, which is, I mean, it's very important to me just because that's sort of my favorite. Yeah, kind well, of film. well, the heart of the narrative it's a mystery, isn't it? Because K go at the start, he goes to the place where Dave Bautista is, and he finds the body. Does he find the body of? the woman or the child or is it the woman with the child it's both of them i think yeah. is it together yeah and then they basically yeah. discover that their their replicants might be able to um have children and this could cause a huge uprising and massive political issues so you know you have you have that um uh, uh what is a sort of lovely aspect or a, a, a great aspect of noir films you have that sort of corruption and conspiracy aspect as well where the the humans don't want to lose control of their replicants and everything. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a stunning film. And I could go on uh about it for a while, so we should probably move on to 2018's Roma, which won uh Best Foreign Film or Best Foreign Language Film, I think it was called at the time, um, at the Oscars. Um not a fan of Coron's first win, but I believe it would be his first win for a Spanish language film. Well, it was a bit odd to see a Netflix film at the time, at least, you know, back in 2018, it was a bit odd to see a Netflix film being nominated for Oscars. You know, we hadn't got used to that yet, I don't think. Now, having a streaming service being nominated for, um, you know, 
such high awards isn't that unusual. I think people have gotten used to the fact that that streaming services are just going to go to festivals and pick up really great films now. But seeing this at the time was you. I don't think very many people um, expected such a moving and beautiful piece from Netflix. I mean, if you knew it was Quaron, you might have done. But um, something I I heard stories that I heard from coming off set was um, apparently very few people actually knew what kind of film Quan was going to make because he directed, shot, edited, and I think he he wrote it and like, he he just did so much on the film that he had such a specific vision for it that very few people um, actually could picture the film that he was trying to make and it is it's such a personal film to him like it feels. It doesn't. I don't feel like anyone else could have made the film that he was going to make. Um, whether or not it's from personal experience, I don't know. But it is a Mexican film through and through. You know, even though it was funded by American and stuff, it, 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 I think it's. But it was an important film at the time as well because 2018 was, you know, post Trump coming to power and build the wall and everything like that. He was creating this sort of um, uh, horrible narrative around what Mexicans were to the United States. I think this film coming out and showing true humanity coming out from Mexico, I think was a really important and it's a very moving piece of cinema as well. Uh, (coughs) (laughs) Sorry, I did a joke. Shame. Uh, Yeah. This film should have won Best Picture. Yes. Um, yes. And to be honest, what you were saying about the Netflix thing, I think that's actually part of the reason why it didn't, is that people just couldn't handle the idea that a streaming service um, was sort of breaking into that sort of uh, traditional way of uh, making a film. We obviously know that Spielberg's famously come out against it. Um, But I think at the time, obviously, you say it's a very fresh idea that Netflix can make a film that's going to be nominated for Oscars, and it should have won the oscar it was the well was we'll that we'll, was that the year was the, that was that green book the year that, green that book. was the year of green book yeah. oh god <laughs> so I think yeah it's just so much better than green book and i it think is. you know there's two films from this year that obviously stand out to us and whether which one's you know the best or which one's our favorite doesn't matter but this should have won the oscar uh but like you said it's it may not be from personal experience but it feels personal Absolutely. it's an experience anyway um, and that's why it's so beautiful. And I think I said in the article that it's got these scenes that give it juice. It gives it that emotional punch, like the scene on the beach, the fire. Yeah. The riot scene is just absolutely exquisite, the way absolutely. he shows it. But it's just full of little little scenes that don't say a lot, but they don't need to. Yeah. They're a part of that experience. And I think films sometimes that try to do that, they get a bit sort of caught in the sort of like mundanity of real life conversation. But... Uh, Quran kind of just nails it every single time. Yeah, no, absolutely, I agree. And I think as well that Quran has, uh, as always, kind of he's become known for the way he shoots his films. You know, he's he never shoots a film badly. Um, it always looks incredible, and he kind of he's kind of got this thing about using really really long takes excellently. Like, I mean, probably his best example of that is Children of Men. There's, you know, three or four, just like outstanding long takes in that um but they're quite flashy 
you know so for example the car sequence in children men when you have the camera in the middle of the car and it's just rotating as they sort of drive forward you have all the conversations and then it drives backwards as they get attacked it's quite flashy in the way that it's shot because you're kind of just sat there like how the fuck are they shooting this like i don't understand how they're shooting this but i think something that um roma does just outstandingly well is it has these really really long takes but they're not flashy at all they yeah. just sort of pan very slowly like left to right or right to left they'll just so the camera will be still but be panning you know on its axis and just shows this modern you know this life um just ex- exquisitely like you say and yes i agree it should have won best picture that year for sure it was um it was robbed <laughs> absolutely robbed i did say in the uh not in our decade article but the defining the decade article um was that i just find it quite funny as well that in a decade where sort of trump's wall became such a powerful and horrible thing that five mexican people <laughs> won the best director of well three people won it over five times and i just i love that idea and uh, i love that someone's won it for basically just expressing what it means to be uh, living in Mexico, yeah, and to be a part of that culture, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And we'll use that to move on to um, so Roma should have won Best Picture, and when that won Best Picture, uh, Shoplifters should have won uh, Best Foreign Language Film. Um, that was we said before. What Corey meant before is um, Roma and Shoplifters. You could argue whether one is better than the other. Personal taste definitely comes into it because they are completely. You would, you you could potentially compare them on paper because they're about you know the very um uh simple narratives about almost everyday life you know um they're very personal but the reason why you couldn't compare them too well is because they are so culturally different shoplifters is from um hirokazu korida um a Japanese director who's been around for some while and again he's another director like many others on this list that have just a almost flawless filmography um this is probably his best film but it's so ingrained in in the in the culture that um that it comes from um you know you wrote you wrote the section the review um in the article i actually saw it first and i i tried so long to get you to watch it and it took you a little while to come around to it um <laughs> what did you think of it when you first saw it well, obviously, you were telling me this is. Uh, I mean, we are, we very often do this where we tell each other that we have to watch something, and I, I'll admit now I'm not the best at watching Phil's recommendations. <laughs> I did I, this one. I did want to watch already though, because obviously it won the Palm Door, and I was just I, I didn't have an opportunity to watch it. So when I bought it on DVD, oh yeah, that's what it came was. out. Yeah, that's what it was. Um, yeah, was that sarcasm? A little bit. So when I bought it on DVD the day it came out. And uh, I think I watched it the same night, to be honest. Um, yeah, I think I understood why you were giving it so much praise. It's such a beautiful film. And for me, it's that audacity that he has to sort of build, to basically spend like so long building relationships between specific, but not just an entire family's relationship, building relationships between specific people in the, in the family to then just flip it on its head. Completely, yeah. In a scene that is literally my favourite scene of the entire decade, it it just blew me away. It was absolutely phenomenal. And then to stay 
on like thematic court basically to still have your themes there from the beginning and you're still able to dis- to discuss them basically it's, oh, it's such a brilliant film. There's, there's something about like his, his films have always had this, had this um fantastic way of like creating this um beautiful relationship between all these different characters many of his films are pretty much just family dramas so you have all these different families and characters and you spend so much time just getting to know each character and getting to know the relationship between each one and and then their relationships between you know others and stuff like that and as you say the the way that he builds it like a normal corrida film where i should say normal like that makes it sound like they're formulaic they're not at all but the way that he builds all these different characters and different relationships and then as you say does this flip on its head where i mean i don't think i've ever seen anything quite like it in a family drama before um it's so original and it's so beautiful it's so elegant um it's quite heartbreaking as well the ending is pretty heartbreaking um yeah and the way it sort of gets you on the side of these uh, I mean, they're they're not even like lovable rogue kind of people. They're they're just sort of they're just sort of minor criminals, I guess. They're just trying yeah. to make it, just trying to make it by. But the way it gets you on their side and basically fall in love with the family is just, I think it's um so expertly done. And I mean, in in a filmography like like he's got, it's the same thing with um, Denis Villeneuve as well. That when you've got a filmography this good to say that this is their best is really, really high praise. Um, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it's just, I'll stop there. I think, I think it's just absolutely outstanding. It's, it's delicate, it's elegant, it's beautiful, and it's so moving. Yeah, definitely. I agree. And also, uh, Sakura Ando in it is just so good. Um, she plays essentially the mother of the family. Yeah. The mother, I'm air quoting that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm air quoting the mother bit, but yeah, she plays um, the mother of the family. And the scene I'm talking about, the bit where it sort of flips over her head, it, it, it does involve her. Um, but she just performs the scene, like we were talking about Daniel Kaluuya, that particular scene where you just look at him and you just think, "Wow, that's just absolutely phenomenal." Yeah, how do you do, do exactly that? the same? You just, yeah. you just, it's the bit where she's, um, she's sort of crying her eyes out, and she's just so almost exhausted by the fact she's crying so much mm. and uh, the way she performs it is just absolutely beautiful um mm. and i know we've we've had very long discussions about shoplifters in the past mm. uh just how good it, it is yeah so like as i said before with um Quran, he had these really beautiful long takes in Roma. he's always been excellent at that and but the thing is i think corrida has always been superb at these very still long takes so where Quran has done these flashy long takes and then goes into these elegant sort of pans Corrida has this way of just setting the camera down usually at quite a low angle and just letting all the characters play out in front of him you'll have these long sequences where there's almost no cuts and it's just everything is always so fluid and it's just so human um and I think Shoplifters is another just absolutely outstanding example of that, of just sitting down and just watching life happen in front of you. And maybe there's a certain level of mundanity to it, but the way that, as you, like, as we've said, the way he sort of flips it all on its head, I think is um, is so engaging. It's so engaging. Yeah, I'd say Roman's, you know, it's got that slightly more glossy feel to it. Maybe it's black and white. Um, but I always think Coriator's just... That sort of like in the moment, very mm. much just capturing what's happening in the frame with people, mm. 
rather he's, than trying to be too sweeping, is just very important. It just it's worked for him because he does it in every single film. So. Yeah, it's almost like he almost makes like social realist Japanese films, um, and I think it's just absolutely stunning. So we'll move but on. In, Sorry, go on. okay. I was going to say, uh, interestingly, I've sort of spoken to uh, Japanese people about shoplifters, and um, they're like, "Oh yeah, you know, I hear it's really good." And like Coriada to them is like, you know, our sort of not Spielberg, but he's he's very famous. Yeah. And uh, I find it very interesting. They're sort of just like, "Well, is it?" They say maybe it's like maybe a little bit boring because <laughs> it's like us watching British social realism, yeah, yeah. where we're not as engulfed by the culture because it's our own i guess i yeah. just found that really interesting yeah but i think it's fascinating as outsiders we love it because we get to learn about this uh culture and yeah. uh you know speaking of other cultures i guess uh to our last film um which is from 2019 <laughs> um which is parasite yes which is amazing directed by uh bong joon ho uh this is a movie that won the Palm Door at first, and then went on to just create this massive buzz, and eventually led to it winning Best Picture. You know, the first ever Korean film, and I think first ever foreign film. To it's it's the first win. ever foreign language film to win Best Picture. Yeah, yeah, which is an outstanding uh, achievement in its own, and it's for good reason. Like, there's so much hype, but I think it's warranted. Uh, essentially, it's about a lower class family who managed to worm their way into working for a rich family in order to sort of not take over, but uh, basically give themselves a better life. And one thing that I love about it is, to me, he's essentially a genre director, someone who takes sort of the confines of a genre and is able to expand and use themes to tackle sort of real life things. The same with like the host. The host is exactly the same thing. Uh, even Snowpiercer and Okja, they're all very important movies. Um, then, like other sort of quite hard-hitting films on this list, it also is so funny. It's I like I think to to have a foreign language film and you're reading subtitles and it still be funny is a testament to how like good it really is. Do you know what I mean? Like sometimes when you watch um, a subtitle film, like a comedy subtitle film, sometimes the the comedy can be lost on you. I think. Um, it has to be visually funny as well as just audibly funny. Um, I mean, like the, the one of my favourite examples of that is when they're setting up for the um, the maid to be, or like the sort of housemaid, as you were, to be fired. Uh, and they found out she has this allergy to peaches. So they sort of just sprinkle um, this peach fuzz on her and she starts coughing and the mum's the mum comes up the stairs and she's just not she's not too bright and this like look of horror on her face as because the um what did the dad say she has um i can't remember he said she has like a very horrible disease and then puts like a ketchup sachet or something over the tissue to make it look like she's been coughing up blood it's so funny um yeah it's uh incredibly important Oscar win as you mentioned um it should the it should have gone to Roma the year before but I'm glad it went to something like this as well um Rock Juho is such an incredible director he he is super original in all of his films I think I think there's very few films like the ones he makes um 
And I think Parasite's the prime example of that. It's it's really, really beautiful. It has this really, really beautiful dynamic um, between the two places that they live, actually. We have this sort of, what's it called? Is it called like a half basement? But seeing that and, you know, you get this very little light coming in through these, you know, these small windows at the top and you see the people's feet like literally walking on them you know walking above them um and then you you have this family that is off of the road above everyone else you have to take these steps to get above everyone else above the street and there's just streams of light everywhere it's just and what a beautiful house that is as well but also something that boggles my mind is that house is a set how did how is that a set how is that not a real house i don't know i don't know how they make something like that instead of just finding a house but um, it's it's incredibly emotional as well. Um, by the end of it, you're you are questioning who the parasites really are. Um, I think it's got a deeply affecting ending as well. Like you have this sequence of seeing what happens to the father, and then you think you you have the, you know you see what the son wants to do with it, um, and then it sort of just goes back to him being in in their sort of um semi underground basement again um i think yeah i think it's an incredibly moving film i think it's um it's just so deeply entertaining as well like we've said about other films on the list it's no it it, it is brilliant at making these really important social points while mixing it with just genuine entertainment yeah i mean to go you know what you're saying about those like those social points is that I, I i was reading a review or i was watching a review of the film it wasn't particularly great, but <laughs> uh, they did say something interesting. It's that no one's, no one in the movie's particularly good because obviously, and what I love is the difference in that for both families is that what the um, what the family are doing when they are sort of getting involved in this other family's life, they have bad actions, but it's kind of for a good reason. You know, they they just want a better life for themselves basically mm-hmm. uh and that kind of <laughs> the the rich family then obviously start to show their true colors a bit and how they sort of talk about and how they talk to uh the people who work in the house yeah and i think that really that kind of leads to an ending which is just uh, it's so explosive but it's completely warranted yeah absolutely absolutely and um i think you know, when we originally made this list, uh, you know, we I said to you, I was like, I want to put this on a list. And you know, so, you yeah, I hadn't seen it. I hadn't seen it at the time. Either, yeah. yeah, and you were, but then obviously you watched it and you completely warranted the decision. And, you know, I know you say, you know, Blade Runner is probably the best of the decade. I'd say this is probably a close second for mm. me, to be honest. It's definitely, that's what I said. Like, Blade Runner 2049 is the best for me, but there are other films where you could easily put in contention as well. But, yeah, I think I also just want to add a little point there as well. If if you say you saw, if you went into the film not knowing anything about it or knowing very little about it, and you say you saw that twist in the middle coming, you are a fucking liar. No one sees <laughs> that twist coming. There is yeah. no, I think there's almost no way to predict that actually happening. Rewatching it, you can see... Um, elements being laid out but they aren't hinting you hinting at you like what's going to happen they're just characters sort of reacting to the situation around them you know in their own knowledge but trying to keep it from from everyone else you know what i mean it's not like when you watch when you rewatch shutter island 
you you might be able to guess the twist that's fine but like when you rewatch it you can see all the hints towards it anyway there are no yeah, hints definitely. towards what's actually happening until it happens you know yeah um, yeah and um yeah, I think it's. I think it's. I've, I've said, I keep saying this. This I'm going to sound boring if I say this again, but I'm just going to do it. It's so original. There's. I think. I think so much can be said for originality in films. You know. Um. I think that's what makes some films really amazing and really memorable. Is if you haven't seen anything like it before. And I know I hadn't seen anything like Parasite before. So that was our 20 best films from the 2010s that we wrote at the end of 2019, start of 2020. Um, I know that we have some opinions about the list now, so we're going to do a third podcast on all the honourable mentions because it has been a really excellent decade. There was many, many films we could talk about for a long while to come, so we're going to do another one about all the films that we missed out, and we're also going to talk about which films we would potentially swap out for other films um i think the issue was that we hadn't seen everything from the decade when we made this it's impossible to see every film but i know there's films i've seen since then um that i could potentially put in but let us know what you think let us know if you think there's any glaring omissions or uh, if you disagree with anything on the list um make sure to check us out on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Real Reviewing. We're at realreviewing.com. Uh, if you go to anchor.fm slash realreviewing, you can find out where this podcast is, but we're on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, um, YouTube, pretty much everywhere you can get podcasts, we're there. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Philson Wilson. Uh, and you can find me at Cospjord. Uh, and I hope you enjoyed listening. Make sure to tune in to our next one.